This is not a show about only content moderation, but it could be. There's so many content moderation issues worth discussing and so many new developments in the field of content moderation to keep up with. So it should come as no surprise that we return to the topic often. If you're out on your summer break right now, then my advice to you is this. Set aside some time. Go to the beach or the lake or whatever. Put on some headphones. And here's the important part. Let us get you caught up on all things content moderation. Uh, here are some options. Perhaps you're still wondering what an Elon Musk takeover might mean for content moderation on Twitter. After all, he might still have to go through with the deal. We covered all that in episode 321, featuring Jillian York of the Electronic Frontier Foundation and our own Baron Soka. Perhaps you're curious about the state of the litigation over Florida's and Texas's social media speech codes, SB 7072 and HB20. Our own Ari Cohn and I get you up to speed with those cases in episode 323. Perhaps you're wondering whether social media services can be forced to comply with so-called transparency requirements imposed by the state. If so, you'll want to listen to episode 315 with guest Eric Goldman, the prominent professor of internet law at Santa Clara University. And if you want to know whether a common carrier theory could be used to force social media services to carry content, please do check out episode 295, a debate between Barron and Professor Eugene Volokh of UCLA Law. There are others I could go on, but those are some highlights to get you started. Before you tune into any of those, however, you should stick with us here. Today, we're going to cover one content moderation bill that's been in the news, one content moderation case that's heading toward the Supreme Court, and one content moderation article recently published over at TechDirt. The bill is California's AB 2408, a misguided attempt to combat teenage social media addiction. The case is Gonzalez versus Google, in which the plaintiff is attempting to convince the courts that social media services' algorithmic recommendations should not enjoy Section 230 protection. The article, Two Dogmas of the Free Speech Panic, is a response to two of the main arguments raised by those who think big tech content moderation is biased against conservatives. I say that piece is worth your time, but you'll have to take that claim with a grain of salt because it's written by me, your host of the Tech Policy Podcast, Corbin Barthold. I'll be discussing all this with two bright young Tech Freedom Legal Fellows, Andy Young and Santana Bolton. I'm pleased to have them here. They've also written on these subjects, Andy on the California bill and Santana on algorithms and free speech. So we'll be touching on their articles as well. Andy, Santana, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. Hi, Corbin. Santana, I believe it's your first time on the show, correct? It is, I'm very excited. I've never so, been on any podcasts before. A special welcome to you, and I commend you for, uh, Santana actually lives out, she's, she's a case study in the digital divide. She lives out in, I don't know if I get to call it rural, sufficiently rural Michigan that you had to come into your local library, which has a podcast studio, so thank you. 
Let's start with uh, AB 2408. It's a bill called the Social Media Platform Duty to Children Act. Um, update from just yesterday with that bill because it had roared through the assembly. It was uh, getting bipartisan support on a sort of save the children rubric. Uh, and then it went into the Appropriations Committee, uh, and they put it in the suspense file. The, the, it's a fantastic name. I don't know if that's the official name for it that they have, where basically they just sort of silently shunt off a bill and declare that they're not going to take action on it this year. So it's dead for now. Uh, certainly everybody who supported it says they're just going to raise it next year, and it is certainly not the last of its kind that we're going to see. Um, so you're talking about a law that is saying any feature of a social media product that causes addiction, this is what this bill does, in teens, uh, can open social media platforms to, uh, injunctive relief, liability, potential civil penalties, uh, with addiction basically defined as, uh, anything that a teenager would have a hard time resisting or might cause harm. It's very vaguely defined. Uh, so Andy, why don't you go ahead and, and uh, from that brief intro, tell us what this bill would have done and why it was a bad idea. Sure. So the as you mentioned, the bill focuses on features and designs that are created on social media platforms and basically tells internet platforms when they're designing a feature or building out a part of their platform, not to design it so well that teenagers will enjoy it to the point of addiction. And I'm intentionally being broad here because the bill speaks in broad terms. But basically the idea is that um, the features on social media currently work so well and are designed so well that teenagers can't resist them. And they're trying, the bill is aiming to avoid that by giving social media platforms pause and forcing them to think carefully about how they design the features and aspects of their website. So to avoid addicting teenagers down the line. Yeah, the, my biggest problem with it, there's actually a bunch of problems, but there is no way for a social media platform to know what's on one side of the line and what is on the other in this bill. Um, they basically make any innovation in their product at their peril, or even keep any part of their product at their peril, because anything that a, um, and I should say, they did take out a private right of action before the thing basically died. I mean, so the plaintiff's lawyer, the plaintiff, the creative minds of the plaintiff's bar were going to be kept out of this. But basically, any county or state or even city attorney within the state of California could have sued under this and is those of us in this world know those uh, attorneys often outsource their work to those creative plaintiff's minds and, and bring in plaintiff's firms to these cases. Um, any story that they can uh, spin up about how a product is harmful would lead to a lawsuit. So what starts out is this think of the children and, oh, you know, social media addiction is potentially a real thing among some subset of teens quickly turns into a shakedown rack. And it's kind of what you should hear when you hear this high flown rhetoric. Um, I mean, I hate to say it when the thing died, 
uh, Jim Steyer, who can always be relied upon to show um, immense and overweening rectitude, said, kids are going to pay the price with every hour they spend scrolling and every app feature that purposefully manipulates and monopolizes their attention. Our kids needed protections from big tech and the Senate failed them. And that immediately takes my mind to past panics over things like video games. Um, my jaw at least figuratively dropped when I was reading through this bill and learned it did not actually cover video games. Uh, so the previous moral panic is just out the window. Uh, those of us with a slightly longer memory will recall that California is the state that passed. It was a bill called AB 1172. And it prohibited the sale or rental of violent video games to minors. And it was struck down in a Supreme Court case called Brown versus Entertainment Media, uh, Merchants Association. And it is remarkable to me, A, that kind of no lessons get learned in, you know, not legislating under the think of the children rubric. And B, that the moral panic of 10 minutes ago gets completely dropped. Uh, in a current law, which kind of confirms that 10 minutes from now, this will be a similarly ridiculous moral panic. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's actually worth pausing here and saying, when I was a kid, I played tons of video games. Um, and joking aside, I think I turned out fine. I mean, what was your guys' experience with like video games as a kid? Oh, my parents absolutely thought that I was addicted to video games. Um, my brother and I used to get in some pretty vicious fights over Star Wars Battlefront, um, which was one of my favorite games, and uh, The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. I actually still play video games a decent amount, maybe an embarrassing amount sometimes, but I go through like phases. I've put in a lot of hours on Animal Crossing in Stardew Valley recently. I also grew up playing video games. I'm a little bit older than Santana. And so the Zelda game that I played was Ocarina of Time. And when I think about addiction and the way it's currently defined, um, and I think about my experience with Ocarina of Time, I definitely would wake up early in the morning and think about the game first thing and go down and play it before school which I think would have raised red flags under the thinking of this bill at the time. Um, but ever, but now that I'm a little bit older, I've completely grown out of playing video games. And that's not something you usually think of as an addiction, just something that you grow out of without having to get specialized counseling or help. So um, I think at some point in my life, people would say I was addicted to video games. And at this point, people might say I've overcome that addiction. But I think that actually shows the uh, the underlying weakness in defining kids enjoying things as kids being addicted to things. Oh no, Adia, you are a survivor. Who beat, <laughs> you know your your long struggle with video games. I actually, so I I had the original like Nintendo NES uh, Zelda game, eight uh, bit. Um, that was not my favorite, but the, the notion, you know, the belief was that like Mortal Kombat with its 16 bit gore was going to have this profound impact on kids. I played so much video games. I don't even know where to start. And, you know, the, the social science actually is kind of mixed. I mean, there are some findings that say that within limits, a certain amount of video games is 
quite potentially good for your kids. I mean, I played a lot of Civilization, and that game is at least giving you a rudiment of history and planning and strategy. I was really into, uh, God, I'm not going to remember the name, but they they got me to play one of those math games with the frog where you like munch on the correct answers. And I like learned the prime numbers when I was a little kid. Um, And, you know, we had a previous episode also on Gen Z uh, and social media where, um, you know, the discussion revolved around the positives that social media brings to kids today. And it's some of the same things of you get benefits of uh, camaraderie, connection with like-minded people or teens who are going through similar struggles to you. There actually is a lot of educational potential to a lot of what's on social media, um, ranging from, you know, actually learning, you know, like economics, TikTok. I know it sounds insane, but that's a thing, but right down to learning how to put on makeup. Um, And all of that just gets chucked out the door in this simplistic rhetoric um, that not only infantilizes children and makes it sound like they are these hapless victims of social media pretty much in every instance, but also infantilizes parents. I mean, it operates under the assumption that parents are not capable of having conversations with their children um, and acting as sort of the manager of their children's social media habits, which is in my mind as a parent, a parental responsibility. Um, I definitely find being a parent challenging, but I, I don't find it mildly insulting this notion that I would need to outsource to the state the responsibility of making sure that my kids, um, you know, get off their phones some of the time. And the bill is strange as well, because let's say as a parent in California, you wanted your kid to use certain social media it's not there's not an opt-in or opt-out option within the bill and so it sort of takes that or it would if the bill weren't dead takes that out of your hands as a parent and uh any positives that you see for social media for your children it's not even up to you it's just avoid addiction and so they're not allowed on these websites well we had several collateral i don't know collateral is the word there are problems with this bill that spread out into many different areas let's put it that way so Simply the process of authenticating who is an adult and who is a kid causes a huge, you know, that is a big nuisance. You know, I don't know if voters will particularly like having to prove uh, their status as having reached the age of majority on every website, every social media website they go to. Um, There is the problem that this stretches traditional court principles. so again, to pick on Steyer, he's a big boy, he can take it. I mean, he tried to compare this to very traditional tort, you know, the idea of uh, the store making sure that the floor is not wet so people don't slip. That is not what this is like. This is the typical mass tort strategy um, that states like California specialize in, where they're trying to gin up massive awards, um, basically against products for being what those products are. I mean, casinos uh, or liquor companies or, um, you know, this is a big debate with like gun manufacturers, people who make products that inherently need to be used with care. uh, We often decide that as a society, there is a certain amount of risk that we will tolerate and a certain amount of responsibility that we place on users because otherwise 
the liability basically just takes that product completely off the market. We've seen that recently with Monsanto and Roundup and the weed killer, where with basically no evidence that it causes uh, cancer, they're still likely to have to take it off the market. So I don't know, a certain kind of listener is going to listen to that and say, I disagree. All of those products should be taken off the market or huzzah for plaintiff's lawyers. Um, I will at least say, you know, that's not the way the system has been for other products. So this would actually be a brave new leap to do it with video games um, and take away parents' ability to make choices for their, their kids, let alone the kids themselves. There's a Section 230 problem because ultimately, and we'll be talking about Section 230 more in a moment in a, in a similar vein, social media, ultimately, it's not the social media that is addicting you. Like you could make a case that the social media in the way they package it and present it to you, the infinite scroll or whatever that they take, they have tactics to keep you hooked. And that's not nothing. But at the end of the day, it's the underlying content that you are watching and that is causing whatever, you know, harm Steyer is claiming exists here, you know, picking out the small percentage of people that I, I don't doubt it is true are going to have a bad relationship with social media, just as some small percentage of people will have a bad relationship with ice cream. Um, so what you're basically doing is trying to put liability on the platforms for the content. And if there's, uh, that is the fundamental thing that Section 230 does not allow you to do. It protects uh, websites from liability for content created by third parties. And then finally, and perhaps most of all, uh, segueing from Section 230 naturally into this one, there's a First Amendment problem. And Andy, you wrote a piece on this for TechDirt. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. So please take it away on why that is a problem here. Sure. So the, the bill is carefully worded. Like I mentioned, it talks about designs and features on the social media websites. It focuses on telling social media platforms not to make their designs or features too addictive. But as you mentioned, um, what's actually catching people's attention is not that Facebook designed its content recommendation options so well. People are actually interested and engaging with the content that's being shared on Facebook. So although the bill tries to get around the fact that it is regulating content and how platforms moderate and amplify content on their platforms, it tries to hide that by focusing on features and affordances of platforms. What the bill really comes down to and a big question is, 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 is this bill actually regulating how social media platforms moderate content on their platforms? And when you focus on how the bill will be implemented, in reality, it does seem to interfere with the editorial discretion of these social media platforms to host and amplify and promote content in ways that they see fit, in ways that they think their users will enjoy. So that is the big First Amendment hook that pulls uh, this bill in. It's one of the most disturbing aspects of the bill to my mind. So it had a civil penalties provision, uh, which is a great way to gin up huge amounts of damages. Um, basically forcing social media platforms to sit still and do nothing at fear of, um, and, and this always is an issue with such things of, is it per, you know, what is a violation? Is it each time somebody uses that feature or is it per feature? And because these things are often vague and they try to get stretched, I mean, the, the damages of such a provision are often, for all intents and purposes, unlimited. 
but the bill said, aha, you can protect yourself from civil penalties by employing an independent auditor who will look at the feature and give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. So as Professor Goldman, uh, who I mentioned at the outset uh, being in another episode here, and we should have him back on again, um, said, let's be real. That is not an auditor. That is a censor. It is a government mandated censor. Um, and so to get protection for your basically editorial choices, uh, you need to get the censor's approval. Like, way to go, California. Brilliant. Anyway, fortunately, as I mentioned at the outset, the bill is dead for now, but it is not the last we are going to see of this kind of provision. Probably not the last we'll see of it in California. Certainly not the last we'll see of it elsewhere. Uh, so stay, stay tuned with that issue. Um, let's shift over, though. We mentioned Section 230. Uh, there is a potentially huge Section 230 case heading toward the Supreme Court. Um, one thing that's always important to keep in mind, there's a distinction between seeking review at the Supreme Court and, in, uh, and it taking the case. So I should be clear, it is a petition for certiorari, petition for review, but it has a few of the marks of uh, the kind of case that the Supreme Court often looks very closely at in deciding whether to, to take it up. Um, the case is called Gonzalez versus Google. And at issue is whether or not algorithmic recommendations fall within Section 230's protection. So what we have is uh, a tragic case of a woman who was one of the many victims of a set of terrorist attacks in 2015 in Paris. Her estate or her family uh, sues YouTube alleging that YouTube shares responsibility for the attack under the uh, federal anti-terrorism act. Now, there are problems here that are independent of Section 230. Um, there's no actual direct link between any um, Islamic State videos on YouTube and the attack. Uh, there's, it, it, there's, no, um, there's no sign that anybody who specifically partook in the attack, say, was recruited uh, by seeing a ISIS video on YouTube. So you've got, you know, again, going to tort principles, you've got issues there. But putting that aside, uh, pointing at evidence that back at the time, uh, Islamic State was managing to have videos on YouTube that were not taken down very quickly. Um, can YouTube be, you know, all else being equal, putting aside the tort things, be sued for that? Well, Google, owner of YouTube, uh, invokes Section 230 on the ground, the fundamental protection of Section 230. Well, it's not our content. Uh, Section 230 protects us from liability for content created by others. So uh, please dismiss the suit. District Court uh, goes ahead and does that. And the Ninth Circuit also agrees, affirms, says uh, you, YouTube, are protected by Section 230 here. But uh, there are some separate opinions from a pair of judges. Uh, the one I'll focus on is Judge Marsha Berzon saying, uh, you know, I'm bound by precedent to do this, but, uh, you know, if it were up to me operating on a clean slate, I would say that algorithmic recommendation is distinct from other editorial choices and therefore uh, not subject to Section 230 protection. And were she right about that, I mean, that is potentially revolutionary because when I say content, created by others, it's a, it's a foundational principle of Section 230 that um, you can repackage 
content created by others. The way it's put is um, the traditional functions of a publisher, uh, you can undertake those and still be protected. So all the things an editor would do, putting an article up, taking an article down, um, deciding to put it at a prominent spot on your website, deciding to bury it down lower on your website, um, you know, the degree of prominence you decide to give one story versus another, all of that is the same stuff you're doing on social media when you put a video up and, and recommend it as, you know, watch this video next or whatever. It's treated as the same thing that an editor does. And that's what Section 230 protects. Well, uh, as anybody who uses YouTube or Facebook or Twitter understands, uh, because of the massive volume of information that is on the internet and on these platforms, uh, pretty much everything you do is the product of a recommendation in some sense or others. So if Section 230 doesn't protect algorithmic recommendations, then it's, you know, what is, what is it really good for, for those, for those platforms? I mean, this really is um, a, a potentially massive case if it were to go pear-shaped. So having set out a lot of uh, uh, background there and given some of my own thoughts, Santana, you wrote an article for us that is specifically on the topic of algorithms. Uh, algorithms are fundamentally at issue in this case because that's how the platforms create the recommendations that they do. Uh, please take us away with uh, both you know, your article, but then your thoughts on the case in general. Yeah. So in my piece, I argued that code is free speech. That is, it's protected by the First Amendment. Computer code is written, and it was written by someone in a coding language. So it performs a function, yes, but code also communicates an idea. Courts acknowledge this. Um, one judge compared code to music notes on a staff. Music notes are instructive. They're meant to be read and executed by a musician. They're also communicative. It's pretty obvious that lyrics convey ideas, but melodies and song structure also do too. Um, some examples of this. Uh, Igor Stravinsky, you'll have to forgive me because I played uh, bass, string bass for eight years in high school. Um, so I'll have to describe some, some music here. Um, Stravinsky, a Russian composer, caused riots with his ballet, The Rite of Spring. Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 13, Babi Yar, is an intensely political work. It is a protest against Russia's anti-Semitism and Nazi Germany. These works are political and sparked political backlash. Babi Yar was effectively banned within the Soviet bloc. So we know that ideas do not need to be written in words to communicate. Code isn't all that different. Bernstein versus the United States is about encryption, an encryption algorithm that was placed on the United States munitions list. Bernstein was a graduate student. He was unable to publish his textbook online without the government's permission. The Ninth Circuit ruled that Bernstein could challenge the placement on the munitions list through the First Amendment. The Sixth Circuit similarly held that computer source code is an expressive means for the exchange of information and ideas about computer programming. It is protected by the First Amendment. So recommendation algorithms communicate lots of ideas. Weighing X interaction higher than Y interaction may mean that the author of the code thinks X is more important. Or a platform may choose not to recommend any content with certain words in it. 
or by an author who has gotten a certain number of reports. So these algorithms communicate ideas about what platforms think users want to see. So it's not that the content is spoken by the platform, which I think is the idea at issue in Gonzalez, um, but the code written by the engineers is what's spoken by the platform. The tools, that is the computer code, are the speech. The decision to recommend content based on user input is a policy choice that does not render any particular recommendation of content, the speech of a platform, but the algorithms, I argue, are protected. And so they can't be regulated by any number of proposed laws that seek to perhaps make algorithms less addictive or whatever else legislators are trying to do. Yeah, it is interesting because the problem I often see when people bring up Section 230 is um, there is a, a nuance about what the meaning of the word publisher does in the law uh, that just it's a little too subtle for some people to understand. And what it leads to is the dreaded uh, publisher versus platform fallacy. Um, this argument is made, we've touched on it many times on the show, uh, that Section 230 only protects you if you act as a platform and not as a publisher. As soon as you start making some, I don't know how they define this even, but non-neutral choices in your content moderation in some way as defined by the, the person making this argument, um, you should lose your protection. And it's just, it, it gets everything completely backwards. It doesn't understand that in undertaking the functions of a publisher, you do not suffer the potential liability that a publisher would normally suffer without Section 230 for things like defamation. And that just is, for some reason, uh, too hard for, for a lot of people who are looking at this law, either in good faith or sometimes, I suspect, at moments uh, in not so good faith. Well, you have a similar issue with algorithms uh, and 230, because as you point out, there's a strong argument to be made that the algorithms that you employ are your own speech and protected under the First Amendment as such. Um, well, at the same time, Judge Brazone, one of the main things that she argues in wanting to limit Section 230 is when you make a recommendation, even if it's just, you know, putting up a video that will automatically play next on uh, YouTube or Netflix or whatever, um, you are making, in effect, a statement that is your own statement of you will like this video next and you as the platform, that is your speech and therefore it is not protected. And so it's tough because obviously lawyers, they want to have clear distinctions and win cases by having things be nice and simple and neat. But the reality is um, it's, it's kind of easy. It, it's a subtle argument to make and it's I'm not in any way saying it's incorrect, but that's that's what you're stuck having to explain of like, look, the algorithm is your speech, but you have all of the protections that a publisher has under Section 230C1. Um, so yeah, there is maybe a sense in which you're speaking, but you're still protected because it's editorial function. Um, and I do worry sometimes that that is not crisp and clear enough to convince all the people that it needs to convince out there. 
Yeah, even um, thinking about this before the podcast, I was, it's hard to work out exactly how to explain this distinction in in a way that makes clear that the content is not spoken by the platform by being recommended by the platform it can be kind of hard and i always when i'm talking about it with my friends or family i kind of return to the idea that section 230 has separate policy goals for why we want it we need platforms to be shielded from a certain amount of liability because we'd like the internet to continue functioning um and if you know i i think if you ended up having platforms liable for situations where they recommended content based on the user inputs you would have to have no content recommendations i i don't know what you would be left with if the internet kind of if you had mandated um chronological timelines or no autoplay or no recommendations whatsoever because the algorithm could lead to you being held liable. I mean, I don't I don't think search engines would continue to work. I think there are policy reasons to make this distinction and to try to convince people despite how subtle and rough it can be sometimes. Well, it's good you mentioned search engines. So um, I actually recommend, maybe we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, so the response brief to the CERT petition is by uh, Lisa Blatt and her team at Williams and Connolly, and they're, they're top notch. Um, and it's anybody who's interested in this issue, it's worth a read. And they do a pretty good job of explaining this distinction between uh, you as the website um, you have latitude to take content created by others and repackage it. And inherent in that word repackage is indeed making editorial decisions of your own, which editorial decisions are themselves sort of inherently expressive. And that's the key of the confusion is that within that box of what you would call repackaging, you are protected by Section 230. Um, and what they do a very good job of explaining not only you know, keeping that distinction clear, but saying, look, the internet itself is this innovative, um, evolving ecosystem of speech. So she writes, quote, to help users navigate the vast amount of data online, interactive computer services, side notes, that's the technical term for websites used in 230, have to make constant choices about what information to display and how so that users are not overwhelmed with irrelevant or unwanted information. Artful pleading might characterize all of those choices as recommendations, you know, the term that's used by the plaintiffs in this case. And that's exactly right. That gets to the nub of the issue that um, actually for the plaintiffs to prevail in this case would basically gut Section 230. Um, and they actually, the plaintiffs, I think it is somewhat clever of them to they basically take the editorial decisions made by the websites and they call them targeted recommendations of information, which by using this new, every word in it is kind of long and it creates this, this uh, high level abstract concept that is meant to sound really foreign and really new 
But really, when you break down those words, what do those mean? They mean editorial decisions. Um, when a newspaper puts something on page A1 with a big headline, what is it doing? A targeted recommendation of information. It's suggesting, hey, you're probably going to want to read this story more than you're going to want to read whatever story we put on page B6. Um, and the fact that it's sort of more granular than the newspaper is neither here nor there. Okay, so they're slightly better at doing it than the newspaper is. That's a distinction of, uh, you know, of degree and not of kind. You know, and, and as uh, Blatt and Co. are good at explaining, it's, it's not as much of a degree as you may think. I mean, newspapers often have like the international edition, which has different headlines from the domestic edition and so on. Um, Berzon, Judge Berzon hangs her hat on the notion that, well, because these recommendations are utterly individualized, and even that's like, well, that's kind of right. But yes, they are definitely more granular than publications that grant that of, you know, newspapers or whatever. Uh, this is somehow different. And I think that is where, I mean, I don't see it, but you're correct, Santana, that at the end of the day, you know, all of law is arguments over analogies and distinctions, and there is a policy element in there. And, you know, I agree with you that, it, that it's important to say, no, as a matter of policy, there is no good reason to treat that as different from what the newspaper does. So that is probably, probably where the, the rubber hits the road. Andy, any thoughts? Well, it occurs to me that if, if newspapers could tailor content down to specific readers, they probably would do that. So again, just the distinction between how websites moderate content on their platforms and acting as though that's totally different from how newspapers decide how to organize their front pages or where to put stories. I agree with you completely that that's a distinction in um, degree rather than distinction in kind. Yeah, well, Moving on to my, my shameless plug in my own piece. Um, a common thread that I see in this case, Gonzalez versus Google, and in AB 2408, um, and in the sort of conservative complaint about allegedly biased content moderation, uh, which is the under thread of everything I said about attacking Section 230, obviously, um, yeah, so the common thread I see is this is this attempt to sort of impose stasis on these fast evolving products and closely related to that, a, a belief that all of this is simpler than it really is. Um, a lot of what we hear said takes a static view of things where, okay, the internet is exactly what it is at this precise moment. So now let me try and force it to be what I want it to be and harness it and control and basically kill its further evolution. So with AB 2408, we see that in the sense of, you know, anytime a social media platform wants to roll out a new feature, they basically have to ask, as you put well, Andy, you know, is this too much of an improvement on the user experience? Um, with Gonzalez, it's, you know, before tweaking the recommendation algorithm, or deciding to present material in a new way, you have to ask, you know, could this expose us to liability for what users see? And in both of those situations, you're putting a strong finger on the scale of just don't move, don't change, because any change 
uh, lawyers can use to attack you. With uh, conservatives and content moderation, uh, the stasis, again, it, it ties to my second point of seeing things as much simpler than they are. Um, and that relates to the fact that um, Twitter and Facebook, this belief, sort of similar to the notion that there are, there are like there are products that addict teens and products that don't, and we can create these two categories and it's that simple. Uh, similarly, there's free speech and allowing stuff to stay up. And then anybody who goes a step further in taking stuff down than I believe should should happen uh, is in the category of censorship. And it's this neat binary. Um, so that brings me brings me to my piece. I wrote a piece called Two Dogmas of the Free Speech Panic Detector. How, why did I write this piece? Um, I've seen it in multiple places. It, it first came up, we had an earlier episode, episode 324, for anybody who wants to check it out, with Amy Peacock of Parlor. Uh, Ari also joined me. I heard it there. And then I, I heard it also from uh, Antonio Garcia Martinez. This notion that you're for us or against us. There's, there's the people who believe in free speech, the sort of pro-Elon Musk people. And then there's like the censors who are, I don't know, you know, the liberals who go to University of Chicago and attend a symposium. That's a rude thing, but boy. Um, and although I don't have much sympathy for uh, the University of Chicago symposium people, I will admit, um, it's just not that neat. Um, and we see this in the fact that you know, it's become less and less popular in the right to say, well, uh, platforms should just comply with the First Amendment because that's uh, I, most people, not all people, but most people who are on that side of the debate have come to realize that's a terrible idea. And there's all kinds of lawful but awful speech that actually nobody wants to see on these platforms. And that therefore uh, there must be some line that is short of the actual limits of the First Amendment. Um, and there's been this sort of grasping around for what that line should be. And the moment that you admit that, actually, even if you don't, but let's put that aside, um, it becomes a debate of this or that up or down on many, many different pieces of content involving many, many different values. And um, everybody is bringing in their own individual set of cultural political experiential priors on a case-by-case -case basis of whether leaving this or that piece of content up or down is a matter of like free speech versus if you want to call it censorship. Um, so the piece is called Two Dogmas because I riff on uh, Willard Van Orman Klein's, this is I know very wonky, but um, analytical philosopher of the 20th century wrote a paper called Two Dogmas of Empiricism, where he actually kind of made a similar argument like this. Uh, the logical positivists were this philosophical school at the outset of the 20th century who wanted to basically say, um, let's figure out what we can actually know about the world by simply putting statements into two buckets. Uh, things that can be verified by an immediate experience in the world and things that cannot. It was called the verification principle. And as intuitive as that might sound at the outset, is rubbish. You can't do it because our knowledge is not based on, it's, it's not like a barrel of apples. 
apples where you can pull out each individual apple and decide, you know, good or rotten and chuck the rotten ones. Uh, the philosopher Simon Blackburn actually put it well. He said, you, your knowledge is actually a single jelly of belief. And when one statement or another turns out to be false, the whole jelly quivers and all of your truth propositions adjust, some of them very minimally or maybe a few not at all, but it quivers all the way throughout. And that's actually very similar to how content moderation works. So um, when Steve Bannon gets banned from Twitter for saying um, they should put heads on pipes uh, he was referring to Dr. Fauci and Christopher Ray. Is that heated rhetoric? Is that a true threat? Um, everybody's going to bring their values into that in terms of whether they see that as your right to free speech, to basically, basically be a loud mouth and cantankerous, and it's, it, that's your free speech, versus somebody could actually act on that and commit violence, so it's an incitement uh, or it's hate speech or whatever. Um, and it's not as simple as, oh, he has a right to that or not. It's very value dependent. Similarly, when Eric Greitens gets up and says, we should all go rhino hunting, very similar as to when President Trump said, we love you to people who were, you know, in the middle of a riot. Um, adding, you know, and adding to the fact that Often it's outside of the statement itself. There's a lot of information we're all taking into these statements to give them context and figure out what's going on. Um, as we, any law student who's read Brandenburg understands, the state of the world outside of the statement can influence the statement and whether people are likely to act on it in that moment. Um, and that's just, that's across the whole spectrum. I mean, to use a final example, so Jordan Peterson got in hot water with Twitter for dead naming Elliot Page. And some people are gonna see that as obviously harassment. Some people are gonna see that as sort of the rough and tumble of free speech. Part of free speech is you're allowed to be offensive. Um, and there's no just up or down with or against us. Everybody's bringing in a big body of values and deciding these things. And it's not easy. And you can't just say, rah, rah, I'm on the Elon Musk side and you're not. Yeah. and. Even to the people who would call themselves not on the Elon Musk side, who would say, just take all that down, who want a whole chunk of speech to be moderated much more harshly on these platforms. I think in a, in a sense, they're also being very naive. What happens, it's not like there's a set of 100 words where if Twitter would just ban those words, it would magically be like a beautiful place. That's not true because everyone who would say those words would just replace one letter or change it to a euphemism. It's like how on, on, on TikTok, people realized that allegedly the algorithm was um, suppressing content that used the word pandemic. So they started saying panini instead. So if you see any of these kind of euphemisms, you're like, why the why are people saying X, Y, Z? You're like, this sounds extremely silly. It's probably because they've actually discovered that their content kind of gets less far if they use specific words. So instead they use euphemisms or they spell it differently or they say something um, entirely like orthogonal to like what they're actually trying to say, but all their friends and in-group will recognize it. So if you ban specific kinds of threats on Twitter, 
you get people instead saying that they're going to go somewhere and quote unquote detonate the best. So it's not that easy to make content moderation decisions and get rid of content. People are much too good at coming up with different ways to say things to make it super easy to suppress, you know, whatever they're trying to say. Yeah, but it's so much harder than I and AGM, who's great. I went on his podcast. I'll, I'll praise him. He's, he's a clever guy. He's fun. He's thoughtful. But I, yeah, I mean, I just disagree with him here. He basically, you know, not only does he have sort of a binary position, but he actually is very outspoken in saying it's not hard. He, he thinks content moderation is basically easy. Um, and I don't know, take like Pepe the Frog. The amount of cultural baggage behind Pepe the Frog is vast enough that almost every single individual is going to have a different set of impressions that they get when they see that. Um, so whereas, say, um, like a Nazi swastika might be kind of an easy case, we all have pretty similar impressions and can come to a conclusion that you know Twitter should be within its rights to just ban it. Um, in virtually all contexts, you know, get the weird ones where like the news uses it and then it's a whole thing, which again shows how difficult this is. Uh, Pepe the Frog is in this gray area. I mean, you could argue that it's kind of offensive, but in a way that's satirical and should be allowed. You could say that, no, it is a clear symbol of white supremacy or whatever, and it should be taken down. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert on Pepe the Frog, but I could see either side of that being argued. Um, or Dark it, Brandon, for instance. Um, now you've got Biden staffers tweeting about Dark Brandon. Was that previously just a you know MAGA thing? Well, the internet moves too fast. Constantly evolving. I mean, another good example is um, the Daily Stormer, so the white supremacist website. They actually had a handbook. I mean, maybe they still do of uh, how their followers should act on social media. And one of its principles was never get caught just sort of being blatantly racist. Always drench it in satire or have it be, I think it's Poe's Law, where it's like, it's not quite clear if you're serious or whether you're joking, but it still gets the message across. and. They would use this principle to try and get around content moderation rules. So, I, I mean, it's it's constantly evolving. It's sort of a problem from hell, actually. I actually turn around and again to talk about my shorthand of people who attend, uh, you know, the defending democracy seminars, and they seem to act like this is a problem to be solved. Like, well, somehow. Uh, get content moderation rights until people are, if not polite, at least not hateful. And I'm like, no, nah, you don't understand. Like my attitude is Twitter has every right in the world to say, not on our watch. Like we are allowed to kick the, it's like a bar, you know, a bar can be a dive bar and be like, we don't care, whatever, throw bottles at the wall, get into fights. I mean, I probably can't literally do that. Uh, or it can say, no, we're a fine dining establishment and you get kicked out for all kinds of different reasons. Well, I see social media is basically the same. That is very different from saying, oh, if we just get the content moderation right, we'll get all of the all of the badness in the world. We'll be shunted aside. We'll fix it. Um, anyway, Andy, what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, just to add to that, um, I think the, the, the free speech crowd, the folks that want to see 
more speech being allowed on social media. When they see Twitter kick someone out of their bar, they say that Twitter is trying to be the arbiter of truth or Twitter is trying to decide or influence how the greater masses think about this given issue by silencing a certain opinion on that issue. And I think the example that you gave shows that um, that that's not the case. Twitter is just trying to keep their bar running or they're trying to keep people enjoying their platform. They want users to come back to their platform and find enjoyment and use out of their platform. I don't think Twitter and Facebook are out there making decisions as corporations in terms of here's how we want the masses to think about this issue. So therefore, we're going to take down content that opposes those issues. That's just not the thinking behind content moderation decisions. And so that's another way in which that dichotomy fails in my mind. It's just not accurately characterizing the reasons why social media companies might take content down. It's not about controlling the masses or influencing how people think. It's about keeping their platforms running smoothly and making sure users come back and continue to engage with their content. Yeah, well, that actually ties into my so the, my article is called Two Dogmas of the Free Speech Panic. And it's, I guess, a bit of a double entendre. On the one hand, it's a play on uh, Quine, his paper, which I use in addressing the first dogma, which is everything we've just been talking about. But then I get on to address the second dogma of the sort of conservative, uh, we are oppressed crowd. Um, which basically ties into the belief, uh, to stick with our bar analogy, that Twitter is like the only bar in town. That's where they get their issue of, well, we can't go to some other bar. And I'm sorry, that's uh, shaky at best. I would say preposterous uh, is the better word for it. I mean, um, the internet, if, if we have to define this thing that we're gonna call the public square, uh, which I question the value of trying to do it precisely. But if we have to, I mean, the public square is the internet writ large. And it's telling that, say, AGM, who, again, I really like, but, you know, where is he making his case? He's making it on Substack. And then he's discussing it on his podcast, which is carried by many platforms. And, uh, you know, if YouTube were to kick him off, he could go to Rumble. Um, I never that's before even getting into the fact that a lot of people um, get their information from cable news, which is maybe unfortunate. So at any rate, I won't belabor that one too much. Um, it's been covered on this show many times. It's probably the less certainly the less wonky of the the two dogmas. Here I was, I just I just wanted to talk about logical positivism and analytical philosophy. You know, that was just a good excuse. Well, this has been fun. Thank you both for sort of playing Ed McMahon to my Johnny Carson on this one. It's very generous of you. Um, one thing you should definitely do as we get toward the end of the summer is get off social media and get outside and maybe touch some grass. Do either of you have plans for the remainder of the summer? Well, one of my big hobbies is to go fishing. And I think it's interesting that in the conversations around social media, whether it's antitrust conversations or content moderation, people overlook niche social media. So I'm on a social media app called Fishbrain, where I post pictures of fish that I caught. And um, people seem to think that the only place in town I could post my fish pictures would be uh, Instagram or Twitter. But in fact, I don't use either of those platforms for proof that I touched grass. I use Fishbrain. So I hopefully will get out and do some fishing. Thanks. I Andy, that. I caught a bluegill uh, last weekend. It was nine inches. 
That's a big bluegill. I'm impressed. Yeah, I was very excited. Um, I'm planning to go camping in Canada shortly, a little honeymoon next week. And so I will be touching water, actually, and sand. That is fantastic. And congrats, Santana, on your your wedding, uh, your marriage. Thank you. Uh, well, this was very recent to our listeners. Um, and I'm so glad you're getting out to a honeymoon. Can you just walk across the border from where you are, you know? Head into Canada, or is, there, or is there like a big once walk? I get to Detroit, it is a short trip over the bridge to Canada, so it is pretty close. I guess I could row across to Canada, but I think customs is kind of harsh on that. I did. Well, I lived in Detroit for a year, and it made headlines one day that a, a man I am almost positive they had been drinking uh, responded to a dare from one of his friends to try to swim across and he got picked up by whatever the equivalent of Canadian border security is. Well, that's fantastic. I am down in sunny Newport Beach, California, and I will uh, sign off here and start preparing for our next podcast episode, which is going to be Dr. Joseph Tainter. And we are going to be talking about why complex societies collapse. So really optimistic, wonderful stuff to end my summer with. Um, I am excited about that, actually. Really interesting. But um, thank you both so much. This has been great fun. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. If you enjoy conversations like this, please do go give us that five-star rating wherever you listen. Um, I've been joined been my great privilege to be joined by Santana Bolton, Andy Young, the future of tech freedom. Uh, I am Corbin Barthel. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.